0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The death toll continues to rise following the earthquake that rocked the mountains of Morocco last week. An educator from Colorado was working in Casablanca at
1: the time. I've never been in an earthquake before, so I didn't quite know. I was in shock a little bit. Like, is this really happening? She recounts how her new
0: community is pulling together to help with recovery and rebuilding. Then, one is an esteemed dancer, choreographer, and community advocate. The other, a noted DEI scholar, author, and educator.
2: This community, I want to celebrate everywhere I go. I want to say, we did this in Denver, Colorado. How did we do this? But I also want to go, and this is who we look like.
0: Cleo Parker Robinson and Dr. Brenda J. Allen discussed the evolution of Colorado's artsy, culture wars, and their respective journeys charting new territory as women of color in Colorado.
2: If you're looking to get rid of a car, running or not, consider donating it to Colorado Public Radio. The process is simple. All you need is the title. We'll take care of the rest. The proceeds of your gift go into CPR's operating budget. Donating your car is a powerful way to support the news and music you value. Make a difference by donating your car to CPR. Start on the support page at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The death toll is approaching 3,000 following the earthquake that rocked the mountains of Morocco last week. At the time, a former school superintendent from Englewood, Colorado, was 150 miles away in the city of Casablanca, where the damage was much less severe. Wendy Rubin moved there this summer to lead an international school called the George Washington Academy. In the past week, she's watched her students organize a major earthquake relief effort. She and a senior at the school, Ryan Mashupshub, spoke with my colleague, Michelle Fulcher, on Tuesday.
3: Wendy, let's start with you. Tell me about where you were when the earthquake happened and kind of what it was like.
1: Yeah, I was here at home in Casablanca in my apartment. Actually, I was already asleep. Um, Moroccans stay up very late. And so I think everybody else was still awake from what I could hear outside. But um, I was asleep and I just felt the room sort of shaking. And I wasn't sure if I have a cat here with me. I wasn't sure is like the cat, you know, jumping on the bed, what's going on. But then it was also loud. And so as I was waking up and I was like, oh, my goodness, I, I think that was an earthquake. And then within about a minute, a friend of mine who lives here in my same apartment complex called and she was like, oh, my gosh, that was an earthquake. And I've never been in an earthquake before. So I didn't quite know. I was in shock a little bit. Like, is this really happening? Um, it was it was odd so ryan where were you when the earthquake hit and what was
3: it like for you
4: i was in my room working on my computer just on my bed my cousin was also with me i felt like it happened gradually so it started off very light but we still felt it my cousin and i were just making eye contact the entire time just uh looking at each other staring at each other not understanding what was happening and then as soon as it started getting violent and loud Then we understood it was an earthquake, and then we just ran to the hallway. My parents were already in the hallway trying to reach my room. I helped my grandparents up the stairs to the front door, and then ran back to get my dog to evacuate the house.
3: Do you have family or friends who were injured or who lost property in the earthquake?
4: I do not have any immediate family or close relatives from the area. Uh, I, however, do know... One staff member from from our school whose entire village was completely destroyed. Unfortunately, a lot of lives were taken. We tried to propose our, our help as much as we could, whatever supplies we could give, whatever immediate help we could give. And so that's when we started collaborating with many schools.
3: And Wendy, you've been, as I understand, in Casablanca for, what, just a few months, right?
1: Yeah, I arrived here in the middle of July.
3: Tell me just briefly what your observations have been, first of all, of, of how the country itself is reacting to this. Uh, kind of what's the mood, what's the sense you have in, in watching this with still a little bit of an observer's eye?
1: You know, since I've come to Morocco, I have found the people here just to be beyond welcoming and warm, um, just so kind to a person, um, whether it's a taxi driver, the person at the grocery store, they always say, oh, you're welcome here in Morocco. You're welcome here in Morocco. And what I've seen since the tragedy on Friday night is that same sort of just warmth and genuineness, but given to their fellow Moroccans. So for instance, Sunday morning, several of uh, staff members from GWA went to one of the blood banks here in Casablanca and we got there about 45 minutes before it opened and we were already about 400th in line. Wow! It was just absolutely amazing on a Sunday morning to see all of these people who've already been waiting for so long, just lined up, ready to help. So you did give blood? So I actually was not able to give blood. The blood centers were so overrun with people wanting to donate that they actually had to turn people away because they ran out of the supplies. So our school, we're planning on doing a blood drive once supplies are replenished and, you know, they are able to take more um, donations. Ryan, I understand
3: the students have rallied around and are really launching a relief effort. Tell me how that got started.
4: On Friday night, we heard that uh, Marrakesh was touched the most, but we didn't know that there were so many casualties and so many people had suffered from it. Mm. So, on Saturday morning, when news started coming out that Marrakesh and its surroundings were at the epicenter of the earthquake, we received a call for help from the American School of Marrakesh were asking for donations or uh, any kind of immediate help that we could give to, whether it was the city of Marrakesh or the surrounding villages. So yeah, I mean, when they reached out, everyone answered. And uh, I mean, we're still working to send truckloads of supplies and canned foods and all types of immediate needs that they might require.
3: So that's another American school now you know, we have some school rivalries here a lot of times with high schools. Is this like, were you all rivals at some point? Is this a, a coming together of folks who might not normally get together?
4: Yeah, no, when it gets to uh, sports and all types of other activities, of course, it's a rivalry and everyone wants to represent their school the best way they can. But now it's a matter of country pride. It's a matter of patriotism, if you want to call it like that.
3: Absolutely. Wendy, what's it like for you to see students rally? You were the superintendent in Englewood for a long time. Uh, What's it like for you to see these kids, for lack of a better word, come together and organize something like this?
1: I mean, I've been blown away at how quickly they organized and how purposefully they organized. And so Ryan is one of the leaders of a sports-affiliated group. And then we also have students who participate in what's called a Leo Club, and it's actually the student version of Lions Club. Mm. And very similarly to the sports teams, the Leo Clubs are all networked throughout Morocco those networks of kids just came together so quickly. And that's something that's a little bit different than my experience in the United States. I don't ever recall a network of kids coming together like that so fast um, through their different clubs or athletics or sports. It would usually be very much um, adult directed. In this case, it truly was very grassroots, very, very impressive. Very impressive.
3: And so, give me some sense of how much this effort has already produced.
4: Well, I know that uh, the person affected from our school, Mr. Julio has already filled up container.
1: 40 foot, like a 40 foot container truck or like a semi, essentially. And that stuff, just your school collected or this network of schools?
4: No, no, it's uh, it's only our school. Wow.
3: That's a lot of stuff. I mean, what did you guys do? Raid the supermarkets? Or how did you get all of this together?
4: I mean, everyone came came together, really. Um, it was really uh, heartwarming to see, not only for our school, but as a Moroccan to see all these people coming together. Whether you were poor or were rich, you would contribute with whatever you had. I mean, if you can't contribute with money, you contributed with blood. If you couldn't contribute with blood, you just contribute with money and, and groceries and all types of things. I mean, in this past year during the World Cup, I've seen Moroccans celebrating together, and now we're just grieving together. So, I mean, yeah.
3: So hard, grieving together. Tell me a little more about that, would you?
4: The death toll, I think, has reached 3,000 today. Everyone you ask from that region has knows someone that lost their lives. I mean, if you look at these villages, they're very old. They're in the mountains, really, so they're not really accessible to transportation, so couple kilometers before you get there, the groceries and the people get on donkeys and walk for kilometers to get there. So seeing all this effort put in together has really been heartwarming.
1: Wendy, are there other staff members you know who've been affected? You know, not only do we have the one staff member, Abdul Jalil, whose village was decimated, but we have another staff member who lost two cousins. Um, We have two other staff members who Have family members from villages as well. And the stories are starting to come forward in terms of the different connections.
3: Wendy, you left the superintendent's job in Englewood to move to Morocco. (laughs) What prompted that?
1: Right. Well, so I retired in June, and my husband, um, who's also an educator, we'd always talked about wanting to work internationally. I had a lot of energy left for education. I didn't necessarily have a lot of energy left for education in the United States, frankly. And there's a whole host of reasons why that is. But it was an opportunity to be able to continue to work in education in a place where I could be growing and learning again and not have some of the political um, issues and concerns that have been so forefront, unfortunately, in our um, schools in Colorado, in the United States, generally speaking. So I decided to throw my hat in the ring for an international position, and I was very fortunate to be selected to be the head of school at George Washington Academy. Um, And Casablanca, Morocco, it's just, it's a wonderful place. I can't
3: help but think, Ryan, pardon me here if I'm over-romanticizing, but a Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca, right? It just seems like that would, you know, as you're thinking of where to sort of change your life after retirement, that seems like a pretty wonderful place uh, until obviously this tragedy struck. Do you think what you've seen from these students will change how you administer or teach at the school? Uh,
1: Without a doubt. I mean, you know, one of the things that I was very struck by when I came here in March for my interview is just how friendly the kids were already, you know, walking through the halls. um, Hello. 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 Everybody greets you and says hello and makes eye contact and, you know, very sweet and kind. And I think that seeing how quickly they mobilized to bring things together, that was amazing to me. And they've shown their um, enthusiasm, the kids who want to make a difference, kids who want to welcome people in, who want to be a part of something bigger than themselves, they want to serve. And what I need to think about is how do I, as a leader, um, help them to to be able to fulfill those desires and those passions that they have around that type of work, right? Not just in the face of a tragedy, but how do we capture that throughout their school experience?
3: Ryan, obviously the need isn't going to go away. It's going to take a long time to rebuild. How do you see this effort continuing at your school through the year?
4: In the meeting we held yesterday, we discussed our short-term uh, goals and then our long-term goals. So for short-term, it was in the next 48 hours, try to get as much supplies as we can. And then on the long-term, we're trying to work on shelter. Winter is coming up. Uh, and in those regions, it gets very, very cold. So yeah, I mean, the long-term goal is obviously to get those people in under a roof and just try to help them as much as we can, whether that's our school alone or collaborating with other schools or even outside of schools, really.
3: Ryan, thank you so much for being with us. Of course. Wendy, thank you. Thank you very much.
0: That was Wendy Rubin, head of school at the George Washington Academy in Casablanca, Morocco. Ryan Mashubshub is a senior there. They spoke with my colleague, Colorado Matters producer, Michelle Fulcher. When we come back, one is an esteemed dancer, choreographer, and community advocate. The other is a noted DEI scholar, author, and educator. Together they share a message of empowerment, community, and connection. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and
2: KRCC. So you'd like to know more about classical music? One way is to look at music through a theme, like animals in classical music. That's a lumbering elephant. Or maybe the theme is music used in Saturday morning cartoons. That's from the cartoon The Wabbit of Seville. I'm Carla Walker. Join me for a new way to look and listen to classical music every weekday at 1030 in the Music Room.
0: One is a history-making dancer, choreographer, and community advocate. The other is a noted DEI scholar, author, and educator. Over the years, they've developed a deep respect for each other and a lasting friendship, too. Cleo Parker Robinson and Dr. Brenda J. Allen opened up about their relationship at Robinson's Performance Complex at the start of the summer. It was part of a partnership and a series of community conversations supported by CPR News and Cleo Parker Robinson Dance. I had the opportunity to lead this very intimate discussion with these two trailblazing women before a live audience as Juneteenth festivities were in full swing just a few blocks away in Denver's historic Five Points community. They weighed in on everything from the evolution of Colorado's art scene and thoughts on so-called culture wars to their respective journeys charting new territory as women building their careers and lives here in the Rocky Mountain State.
3: You are known as a trailblazer and a person who has broken down barriers, especially in the arts communities, but in the community in general. Tell us a little bit about what that experience
2: was like for you. The struggle, you know, it's sort of interesting, as you think about dance, you would think you put me in a tutu and in point shoes, but this tells you, my coloring book tells you a little bit of the struggle and the, and the celebration. The celebration of being born in Denver, Colorado. It was always clear to me very young that I was a part of a struggle. And it never was like hard and heavy. It was like, you're part of a struggle. That was like you know, when everybody's trying to lift something and they go, can you get over there and help lift this because it's heavy? Then if we're all lifting it, it isn't heavy any longer. And I think that that's what I learned is that I was born into a struggle. I think when I was born, um, I already had a whole lot of powerful words that were about me, about what I would be, about what I should be. And I'm like, I don't know what they're talking about. But they saw me as a dancer because I moved a lot. But even before being 10 and 11, 12, where I became very ill and could not move, I was, I was a moving child. I was moving all the time. And Jazz is what was born into my body spirit. So I moved, that was natural. And I thought all children, that's the way they did. You moved, you got up, you moved, you woke up, you did the dishes, you moved. But a dancer, whatever the world thinks a dancer should be, is not what I thought about. I thought about my father wanting to be a doctor and not being able to be a doctor for many reasons, but struggling to become something in society that would be respected, that a black man could walk into a room and do everything else a white man could do, which is to train and to get, do his studies and to be elevated. And he realized that there were different laws for him. Even if he did the same thing, the outcome wouldn't be the same. And I was like, whoa, that's pretty deep. <laughs> so watching that, and trying to shift that very early was my dance. That, that was my dance. But I think the struggle of not seeing enough women that looked like me or felt like me, I'd walk into a ballet studio and I'd go, Okay, well, that's really beautiful. But I don't find myself in there because I didn't see anyone who looked like me, although I don't look that different. But I <laughs> thought I looked really different. It's the way we see ourselves. But I think it's not what we physically see, but what we feel. And so I think it, it challenged me. Thank goodness that that was my background. Because whenever anybody walks into our house... I want them to feel that they see themselves and belong here. And so I, I think that's, that was my, that, that's where it was. <laughs> I want everybody to feel they belong. Dr. Brenda, I
3: happened to be in the audience last year when you were moderating a panel discussion about diverse representation in media matters. And I was fascinated by that. And you were very vocal about being recruited to Boulder from Howard University. an a historically black university. What do you remember about that time and especially as a
5: DEI scholar? And how do you feel that experience evolved? Before I say more about what it was like to come to CU Boulder to be recruited from Howard, I just briefly want to share as you reflected on your childhood, that I was born and raised in Youngstown, Ohio in the projects in the 1950s and 60s at a time when the United States in general was was working favorably with so-called poor people. So my brother and sister and I, in those projects, Westlake Terrace, we had access to uh, what I later learned, folks were going like a way to camp and getting stuff we had. We had fully stocked playgrounds. In summer, we had arts and crafts. We had, the, if you're familiar with the settlement house movement, oh, yeah. which was primarily for immigrants, well, they had a settlement house for us in the project. So we had drill team, we had cooking, we had, we had uh, sports, et cetera. So it was a rich, rich, rich childhood. Moreover, and, and I was chosen by my community because I was smart and I was adorable. Yes, even then. And I, had, and I had so-called good hair, but my mom was like, there's no such thing as good hair, right? So anyway, I, I came from that space of being so beloved and so uh, reinforced for being smart and learning. And then I went to seventh grade when I became, I went from a predominantly black elementary school, but all white teachers, mind you, Mm -hmm. and into a uh, junior high and high school where they so-called tracked us allegedly according to IQ. Mm -hmm. And so Tom Luton and I were the only colored boy and colored girl in all those classes. Now I reflect on that, that I'm confident that was social engineering. Mm. I can't believe there's just only one each, one boy and one girl. Mm. So I was around a lot of white folks um, and and saw that I was just as bright, et cetera, et cetera. So Mm -hmm. cut to, to the chase of later on, of going to undergrad and grad school and being at Howard University. Being recruited to CU Boulder at a time which still now, they were trying to get more folks of color. And with me, they got a twofer. And for me, coming into that space did not feel as challenging and hard as a black woman as for others that I eventually met. And I began to understand these dynamics even better and differently, because I was very accustomed to being a peer of smart white people, right? Very, and being in the north at that time, and even with all the civil rights, you know, all the things that were going on. And by the way, I was actively involved as a teenager, voting rights and all that. I can't tell you why, yeah. but I, it just felt like that was what I was supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. So I get to see you, Boulder, and here, especially from so many of the black students, and also some of the black staff and faculty, I was so welcomed into the community. Starting with a few black folks in the city of Boulder Mm -hmm. embraced me, but then folks over here in Denver Mm -hmm. found out about me Mm -hmm. and I ended up with folks that were just like relatives, black people. Mm -hmm. I ended up being fully connected to Colorado Black Women for Political Action. I heard about Cleo Parker Robinson Dance, came to events, went to Y'all, should I tell y'all about some of the clubs I went to? Because I, <laughs> I was in the club, too, right? That club life. Yeah, Casbah, ah, that's where you, oh, bar oh bar. yes, the Casbah. Come on, come through. Right, Spruce right, right, Street, right. okay? Yeah, right, so anyway, right. Mr. A's, yes, that's right. So I, I, I loved being able to have that blended life because I am multicultural. I, can, I, I could go from a reception at the president of the university's home and engage with those people quite effectively and, mm-hmm. and relatively comfortably mm-hmm. to indeed to Pierre's, mm-hmm. which Pierre's is not too obvious. far, used to be right, mm-hmm. give me some catfish. Mm-hmm. But my, and my, and my point there is how as we think about our stories and we think about you know, our various identities, how crucial it is to recognize the power of context, mm-hmm. but also how crucial it is to recognize the power of community. I continue to be so grateful that I actually could cry that so many different communities fully embraced me, including my home department of communication at CU Boulder that fully embraced me even as they saw some of the challenges, even as I saw other women of faculty, women of color on that campus get ill from the extreme racism they encountered. I experienced students sharing to me just my presence on that campus made them feel better. I wrote that down, power of community.
3: Dr. Brenda, we had a conversation before this panel, and you asked, you know, how do how I enjoy Colorado? As I mentioned, it'll be 11 years here. Ah, Larry And I told you the same thing. It's community that makes a difference. Did I enjoy it in the beginning? No, but I did not know anyone. I didn't have friends, I didn't have colleagues, but as I became a part of the community, and my husband became a part of the community, and my kids became a part of the community, leaving now my mom being a part of the community. It makes the difference. I would say, at Colorado community, took some time, but they have embraced me, and uh, and I'm you know forever grateful for that. So I, just, I had to write that down. Absolutely. Yes,
5: yes. And what I see similar to the three of us is something I feel compelled to uh, draw out is that we Are grateful and proud to be black Mm -hmm. and and we are grateful and proud that there are communities I have felt embraced by Mm -hmm. those persons right so many different people that I could still be very much unapologetically black and you know do what I have the kind of career I've had and to stay here in Colorado and, and find my place and, and be just so grateful to so many people.
3: Just to kind of add to that point, I recently read something talking about how children that have been instilled with a sense of pride, they just do better. Sound, you know, yeah. because why waste your time hating yourself, hating your culture, or disting yourself from those things? Though so I feel like, you know, that comes from actually reading the truth and understanding the resilience part of our experience, Our you know the accomplishments, the things you will become, and you know just having a good time—that's one thing I to do.
5: Now that's I think a that's crucial what we that's point. Right. Oh, the yeah. notion of that's black, right. you black gotta have joy that the t- all the time. I'm very grateful. I'm I'm, yeah, I'm a exactly. chair of a, of of a, um, the board for Rooted. If you're not familiar with Rooted, check us out. It's a foundation locally that really provides funding for anything that's going to help education for uh, disenfranchised young people. So I'm grateful that we funded a collaboration with people for the queer endeavor at the University of Colorado Boulder, which had especially queer people, young people of color, sharing their journey, sharing their challenges, et cetera. And one of the things that stood out for me that I loved that the documentarians focused on was not only you know how has it been hard for you, what are your struggles, what do you want educators to understand? Because this is designed for DPS specifically, right? For educators and young people. Because so many, as you may know, so many LGBTQ, young people commit suicide or have mental health challenges. Mm -hmm. At any rate, Mm -hmm. uh, what I loved is that they then asked them, so what do you like about who you are? Mm. And they immediately could talk about joy and sharing and and so forth, and I'm trying to tell you right now, that's what what I could say I loved being able to, the club life, I loved, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so many different ways (laughs) of Mm -hmm. being able to have music and dance and art Mm -hmm. And you know, talk stuff, and not have uh, to code switch. Be with people, exactly. you know. I could share in a certain it's way. It's we have to be okay that we can embrace it's joy. Well, Frankie Beverly and May said it right. <laughs> joy and pain. And
2: pain. Uh, joy Just and saying. pain. Right. You know, coming Thank into you. Boulder, I felt the same way. It was where the college kids were, but I didn't see anybody of color. Was I was pain. invited to start the first Black Studies classes in dance. So I started the the dance program there. But they didn't even give us a studio. We were put in the wrestling gym. And I was like, what why would I not be given the same opportunities that anyone else who's going to be teaching dance. I I started there before I had the company. I started right right about 1969. So I was happy about uh, Penfield Tate. Many of the the black leaders that were there that saw me there. And if they did not see me there and embrace me. But I remember after my first class I came over to his home and I said, I thought you said I was teaching black dance. And he said, you are. I said, well, I don't have any black students. What is that? He said, that's precisely why you're here. Okay. <laughs> so I was like, so where are the black students? I thought I was coming in. So, um, so, so that was very exciting. And so when I, I was honored enough to receive an honorary doctorate just last year. Excellent. So, hello, I had to just hello, say it, I just Dr. had to Pastor say it, Robinson. I wanted so badly to say, and you didn't even think I belonged in the department. Oh. So that's the, that's the jubilation. Oh, that's that, and yet to say, well, I, I'm still alive and I'm still being seen in the different stages, but I don't want anyone else to have to go through That's that right. struggle That's right. that, of course, I think I had to go through. So uh, uh, our young black women, our young black men, our young, um, young people of color, any, anyone mm. does not have to go through the, the challenges that, that really leave scars, yes. they leave scars. Yeah. Uh, we're working through that all the time. Yeah. So that's why I think that the arts are, are some of the most important things for our being right now. That's why we can sing and dance. Even when we have some very painful past or families or whatever it is, we have medicine. Yes, That's our medicine. Yes,
5: healing. The drums and the healing. healing. And, so, yes. and I
2: think that we, we have to have access. But when people think that they have to have money to do certain things, they know they don't have it then they they deprive themselves. And I'm always saying, that does not matter. We're going to find a way. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, that's why we've been able to survive for these five decades with our families that really honor that.
0: Dr. Brenda J. Allen is a noted DEI scholar and professor emerita of communications, a retired vice chancellor for diversity and inclusion, and professor of communication at the University of Colorado, Denver. Cleo Parker Robinson is the founder, artistic director, and choreographer of the more than 50-year-old Denver-based arts institution, Cleo Parker Robinson Dance. I spoke with them both before a live audience as Juneteenth festivities were underway in Denver's historic Five Points community. When we come back, how has the arts community evolved in Colorado and is culture under attack? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and
3: KRCC. Subscribe to The Lookout from CPR News to get the big news and get more connected to Colorado. The Lookout newsletter is delivered to your inbox with the big stories from across Colorado every morning. Subscribe to The Lookout now at CPR.org.
0: Back to my conversation with two trailblazing Colorado women who pursued two very different career paths yet found themselves facing similar struggles and challenges. Dr. Brenda J. Allen is a noted DEI scholar and former vice chancellor and professor at the University of Colorado Denver. Cleo Parker Robinson is the history making founder, artistic director, and choreographer of Cleo Parker Robinson Dance. I spoke with them before a live audience at Robinson's Performance Arts Facility in June they shared their thoughts about how colorado's art scene
2: has evolved over the years oh i think we've changed tremendously but um i I don't know i i think there's two i think language is very important arts community and culture are not necessarily the same i i think i've always felt that i could step in both because i was born to artist My father was an artist. My mother was an artist. But they did not teach art. And they didn't, That my mother was a musician in the San Diego Symphony like at 12. She was just, loved classical music. My father was a jazz musician and became one of the first black actors in Denver. So I was around theater people. But I was just around people. When we had a gathering, like let's say, let's honor Father's Day. My father is with me in spirit. And I say thank you to all the fathers that make their homes filled with joy and laughter, even though everybody struggles to, to do more. But my daddy was always bringing culture into the home, and so we didn't go take a class. We'd turn on the tube and there would be Harry Belafonte and we'd all do the calypso through the front room and, the, and it would be everybody would dance, not just whoever, if you're going to be the dancer. It was, no, 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 dance belongs to everyone. And so therefore, I think, I thought everybody's home was like that. And I realized it, it really wasn't. And so I think bringing that, the culture that people experience in their own homes is really what I, I look at more than anything, and try to penetrate the arts community into understanding the value of that as well, that they become valued. And so I think that the arts community have changed, but I think the ballet has changed. I was in Atlanta honoring Virginia Johnson who who was one of the first black ballerinas, and I wanted to meet with all of the ballet directors in the country that started right here in our house, where the New York City Ballet, the ABT, the Joffrey, the everyone, those directors who are usually white men run the ballet world. And... Even women who dance forever are not in those positions. They don't make those salaries. They don't have those reviews. They don't get that kind of support. So that's changing and we're doing it. But it's the International Association of Blacks. We've been working on that as, as an initiative. Um, when we do the Mile High Dance Festival outside after our summer program, I love seeing all of the different artists and, and cultures together. And I don't, I'd like to see that happen. I want to walk into a space every day and have a party. Every day. I think every day should be a party. Everybody should be partying every day. And they should feel honored and they should feel celebrated.
3: There's a term out right now, culture wars, where there's a belief that there's an assault on culture. You know, challenging things in terms of legally and, you know, what books you should be able to read and what shows and which kids should be taught and these things like that. So I'm just wondering if either of you would like to weigh in. Do you think culture is under attack right now?
5: I, I think yes, definitely. And for me, it's a yes and. Uh, and I think part of what we're, what, and I, this is my like res, sort of gentle optimism, uh, skeptical optimism, if that's possible. I feel like there's a last, gasp from a alas kind of hanging on to you know certain ways of being in this country specifically that you know returning to the way things were which is code for you know when we when so many people were discriminated against and so many people were in power and i think you what we're seeing is just that strong fear that it's happening regardless and yeah. that is to say that progress, we've made progress that it's gonna be very hard to yeah. take back. Yeah. Even as people are striving to with different, you know, just recently in Texas, no more DEI programs in institutions of higher education. But there's already oh, lots yeah. of resistance oh, yeah. to resistance, that. Yeah. No, no teaching of CRT, et cetera. So those are some examples of types of culture mm-hmm. wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, critical race theory, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So those are types of culture wars. Wow. At the same time, however, there is so much that often is unheralded or you have to look for the news or you know you're a part of the news. So I, I looked I, in locally, um, perhaps you know that, um, one someone who was on a panel with me, uh, Representative Leslie Harrod, that she actually received a Leadership in the Arts Award in 2021 for the American um, Americans for the Arts. Um, and specifically, she has been Pivotal in this state of talking about the arts and policies and funding and so forth And so one of the things she mentioned in receiving that award is that arts and culture is a 14.4 billion dollar industry in this state and what's happening according to the Americans for the arts Organization is that there's a strong understanding and a reckoning about DEI in the arts which has to do with the bottom line. And many of you probably know that when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, the rationale is we need to do it um, both for the moral ethical, it's the right thing to do, it's who we say we are as a country, and also that it has bottom line implications, that your foundation, your theater, your museum, your dance company, whatever, eventually be based on where our nation is going demographically in so many ways you won't have customers you won't have clients you won't have people who will come to view you won't have donors you know so that bottom line in addition to it being the right thing to do in addition to understanding that we should value everyone's ways of engaging in the arts that there's a strong push strong movement in many of those areas, right, that say we've got to do better, we've got to provide representation, we've got to provide um, access, we've got to have staff, we've got to do leadership development, you kind of alluded to that, and there are many ways that that's happening, but again, that doesn't tend to get broadcast and advertised, and that, folks, is what I want you to do if you're not already doing, doing your homework in terms of Where are the places where actions and activities and policies and procedures and internships and mentoring and sponsorships, so much is going on, both for the fact that the harsh reality is for anything in this society, up the road, it's got to. It's gotta change.
3: So it sounds like you're saying, really, dingy-eyed is going to be a matter of survival, whether you can respond to to diversity, equity, inclusion or not.
5: That's so good because I found a quote that said, it's a cultural imperative, right? <laughs> it's an imperative. Yeah. And, and, yeah, yeah. and if people who don't understand that, it's, it's going to be a harsh awakening. And if you even if you kind of understand it and figure out what are you, I'm back to my, you yeah. know, what I often say, yeah, what can exercise. you do, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Dr. Brenda J. Allen
0: and Cleo Parker Robinson speaking with me in front of an audience earlier this summer. After the break, Dr. Allen talks about power dynamics and social identity. And will Ms. Cleo write a book about her life? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and
1: KRCC. CPR Classical plays the great works all the time. Now, hear them nonstop every Saturday afternoon at 1. Music that stood the test of time. The works the world should know. I'm Jesse Jacobs. Join me for Essential Saturdays 1 to 5. You can ask your smart speaker to play CPR Classical.
0: Let's get back to my conversation with history-making dancer, choreographer, and Denver-based community advocate, Cleo Parker Robinson, and her friend and colleague, noted DEI scholar, author, and educator, Dr. Brenda J. Allen, a retired chancellor and professor at CU Denver. During our discussion before a live audience, they opened up to me about their experiences as women of color charting new territory, building their lives and careers here in Colorado. I asked Dr. Allen about her book, "Difference Matters: Communicating Social Identity," which includes her research about power dynamics and social identity. I showed
5: the just showed the audience the book itself. It's the third edition, mm. and I do want some a round of applause for that. That it's the third I, I, edition. I, 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 and I, and I and I say that for, because anyone who really knows me knows that I tease a lot about being the queen, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But you also know that I say we are we all can be queens, mm-hmm. all of us. Mm-hmm. And also that um, my humility, i'm I'm a humble person. I'm a humble and grateful child. I really am. And so for me, the idea of me, the oldest of of phenomenal mother, a single mother, who raised the three of us in the projects, um, originally working as a maid, cleaning white folks' homes, mm-hmm. and then who busted her butt, taking her GED, getting a job at the post office, working nights, yeah. and making sure that I had a kind of life that I look back on now and now wonder, how does she do that, right? Or come, Ma, I need money for my Girl Scout uniform. Ma, I need to take this, uh, they say I need to take the ACT, whatever, so, and and then, so many of the people throughout my life who saw something in me mm. and lifted me up. And then I did the hard work too. So it's grace mm. and hard work that I would not have imagined writing a book, period. Mm. But so many of my folks in Youngstown, Ohio, they believed in me. And mm. they would say to you today, uh, we knew you were gonna do all of that and more, right? Oh, wow. And so it's that part wow. of that community. So that, I just wanted to say this mm. book as a third edition, right? Not just that I wrote a book, but there's a third edition because the demand for it is just that powerful. And so difference matters communicating social identity. Difference I define very simply as ways human beings vary from one another. And those ways we vary more often than not, any category you name through history and currently and power dynamics you will have one group that will tend to be privileged and one group that will tend to not be privileged, to be discriminated against. And so those are the power dynamics that there, regardless of who we are, regardless of how we feel about it, it's baked into our system. And so the second part of the title is communicating social identity. Our senses of who we are, how do we share meaning with one another in many ways, including dance and song and how we dress and the words we choose and, You know, the medium we use to express ourselves, et cetera. So it's all of that. And in the book, I single out gender, race, class, uh, disability, age, and sexuality. And with each of those, I do a very condensed version of in the United States, how did we construct those identities? Because we made them all up. Uh You know, we made them up in terms of when you say race. Right, racism, social construction, has very real consequences, don't get me wrong. So for each of those I talk about, you know, for age for example, did y'all know that teenager, there was no such thing as a teenager until some of the uh, folks doing marketing realized that people at that particular age grew, we could aim we could aim at them. I'm a baby boomer. When I born, was I a baby boomer? No. But, you know, so we create these labels and they have meanings and they bring power dynamics, et cetera. So the book is about that and it's scattered with stories, it's scattered with facts and statistics as well as... I uh, have a section, of, in the, periodically I would say pause to ponder. So what do you think about this new definition mm-hmm. of gender? That book, that or, you know, these that. different ways of inviting. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of each chapter, I have one of my big things is so what now what? Mm-hmm. So I have questions, you know, I have ideas about if, if you were to create a social media post about what you just learned about the social construction of age, what would that be, right? Or go online and find, find a group that's, you know, somebody who's working on neurodivergence for people of color. Or, uh, you know we now have five generations in the workplace working together at the same time. Is that part of your experience? And if so, how's that working for you? So anyway, though, that's just, a, wow,
2: a little bit about the book. Everybody who sees me and talks to me, do you have a book out yet? And I'm like,
5: uh-huh.
2: I have, I have 5,000 journals. And when I read oh. them, I can barely, I can barely get through the journals. I look at it and go, how did we do it? And then yes. I know, I know it's yes. because my mother and father uplifted me and this community, this community, I want to celebrate everywhere I go. I want yes. to say, we did this in Denver, Colorado. How yes. did we do this? Yes. But I also want to go... And this is who we look like, and this is who we look like, yes. and this is how we yes. did it. This is yes.
5: Dr. Cleo Parker Robinson, is that <laughs> what, what may not, not but, be obvious for anyone who has not paid attention or is not familiar with you, phenomenal woman, is that you live inclusivity. You live it. And my sense is that you don't necessarily even think of... It's not even something that you say, well, I'm going to be sure we have this kind of person, that kind of person. Because, you know, some people, you, we need to do that because the representation is not there. And yet that's how you live it. And I, I want to um, invite you in this moment to commit to sharing your story somehow. I started to say write a book, but I, I want you to commit... To documenting your story somehow, will you commit to that?
2: I will. I will. I will.
5: That
0: was noted. Colorado-based DEI scholar and author Dr. Brenda J. Allen speaking with me at Denver's Cleo Parker Robinson Dance Theater back in June. You also heard from the namesake of that groundbreaking dance company, Cleo Parker Robinson herself. This weekend, Saturday and Sunday, Cleo Parker Robinson Dance returns to Denver's Ellie Calkins Opera House for its fall show Firebird. The innovative interpretation of the classic is set in the Hawaiian Islands and the production is being put on in partnership with Tabanka, a Norwegian dance company focused on the African diaspora. For more information on the show, including how to purchase tickets, please check out the Colorado Matters podcast page on our website. That's CPR.org. And before we go, a note that Cleo Parker Robinson Dance is a supporter of CPR News but does not have any influence on our editorial content. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening, and thanks to you from the Colorado Matters team.
4: Tyler Bender Carl Bielich, Anthony Cotton Pete Kramer
3: Andrea Dukakis Rachel Estabrook Michelle Fulcher
4: Matt Hers, Tom Hess
3: Michael Hughes Chris Ketchum Pedro Lumbraño Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner,
0: and I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC.